Hi everyone, I'm Ben Tapper and this is Invisible Truths. This is a podcast for anyone who carries burdens that feel too heavy to bear, questions too vulnerable to openly discuss, or pain that you're certain no one else will understand. Even more than that though, this is a space to acknowledge and explore the invisible truths within each of us. If you're still interested, let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another week of the Invisible Truths podcast. I am here this week with Melissa Flora Bixler, uh, who I'm so excited to connect with. Melissa is a pastor uh, of a Mennonite church out in uh, North Carolina, and she's also the author of Fire by Night and a, a pretty vocal and respected voice in Mennonite circles and really Christian circles, especially when it comes to issues of justice. And so I'm thrilled to have you on. Welcome, Melissa. Thanks so much, Ben. It's great to be with you. Uh, is there anything you want to add in terms of your background for the audience before we jump in? I'm mm-hmm. also a parent of um, three children, so I sometimes I just like to remind people that I'm always tired. So whenever, <laughs> whenever you interact with me, the, it, I wasn't always like this, um, <laughs> but now I'm just always tired. That's fair. <laughs> sorry, sorry to be the bearer of that. I'm sure someone's already told you that, but uh, yeah, no, I'm. I'm uh, real, so. I've been bracing for it for months. <laughs> yeah, I, bet, I bet you have been. <laughs> oh, one of the reasons that I um, have come to admire you so much is because of the way you call people out in love. It doesn't seem, it, I'm sure at times it does, but it doesn't have to lead to a damaging relationship. Um, it's a very unique style of calling them out. And I think I heard you phrase it once as actually calling them in, which is really fascinating. So I'm wondering if you can talk about how you, how and when you developed that boldness and, and um, how you've crafted that style of calling people out or in, in love? But I think a, a important turning point for me was reading um, the incredible scholar uh, Bell Hooks, who mm. I think people who know Bell Hooks as one of the preeminent Black writers of the century. And it, when you really get into her work, what you continuously see in her is a sort of reclaiming of um of freedom as something uh, that is something that um she desires for uh, human communities Mm. um and and the recognition that um we are all bound up in oppressions that oppressors are oppressed by their participation in oppression and that people who are oppressed are oppressed by oppressors. Right. Um, and that there is this, there is a, a mutuality to, um, to oppression. And, and, and that's actually when you're calling people out of the position of being oppressors, you're actually calling them into their own freedom. Mm. Um, uh, white supremacy is, is a wound on the soul of white people. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think that for me, and, and I, I've really experienced that, you know, I'm, I am, you know, I love all these stories, but you know, I know, I never owned, my, my ancestors never owned slaves. My ancestors definitively owned slaves. Um, like, I'm absolutely 100% sure of that. Um, very early settlers to the United States and um, part of a tradition, the Mennonite church that, you know, we, they, our, our spiritual 
ancestors were great farmers and mm. moved into the places on the plains where people were, indigenous people were slaughtered to make way for our, our Mennonite forebears. And, and so I, I intimately feel myself wrapped up into the, in the story of oppression. Mm. And it has been freedom for me to be, um, to, for the truth telling on my own life and mm -hmm. then to enter into spaces of, of freedom and, and co-conspiracy for freedom of others. And so my life is a witness to that. Whiteness is bad for white people. Patriarchy yeah. is bad for men. Heteronormativity is bad for straight people. Yep. It just is. And so I love getting to, to participate in um, calling people into their own freedom. Mm. Has there been a time or times along this journey where others have called you uh, into wholeness and love? And, and, and I'm wondering if you can talk about that and what that experience was like for you. Sure. Yeah. I, you know, I've had, I feel like my, my whole life has been a grace of people mm. <laughs> gently carrying me. Um, and sometimes it gently in ways that didn't feel gentle at the time. Mm. And I look back and think, wow, that was, that person offered me a lot of grace or, mm. or just the, or even the grace of saying to me, I, you know, you need to go figure that out on your own, or this is a person you can read. And, um, here's, I'm, I'm offering you up the space to hear that. I'm, I'm not really ready to talk about that, but this mm. person is, um, yeah. And one person in particular was Ivy George, who was my uh, is um, my sociology professor in college, who mm -hmm. was an Indian woman, um, first generation American. Mm. You know, introduced me to the writings of Cornell West and Foucault. Mm. Like, really, just yeah. so formative. Like, really, the base of my sort of way of um, being in the world was formed by Ivy George, and I shudder. I shudder to think mm. of what it was like for her to take an 18-year-old <laughs> white um, evangelical college student from the suburbs of DC mm. and to be fully present and not just to want to scream in frustration and anger, but she had really committed her life to being mm. um, somebody who called people in, um, people mm. like me. Um, and so I'm grateful every day for Dr. George and, and for the, yeah, for the way that she, she opened up some, some doors for me to walk through in my own freedom. That is beautiful. And I feel like those relationships are so um, rare. You know, it, it's, it, I know for me, it, it's hard uh, to, to call people in, in love, to, to, to walk the line between alienating them and um, inviting them in. Um, and so I, I, you know, I can imagine, the layers that there are to that and what it took for her to do that for someone she's mentoring and, and walking yeah. with is yeah. phenomenal. Yeah. Um, as, as I think about the times I've been called and invited into deeper wholeness in love, one of the people that does this most consistently for me is our, our mutual friend, Shannon Dykus. Mm -hmm. um, she is exceptional at doing this. Um, and, and I think it works in our relationship because I know that when I need her to listen and receive me as I am, she's going to. So then I also thus trust that when she's calling out my bullshit, that she's most likely accurate and I need to at least reflect on it, you know, if not change. Yeah. Um, and, and so I think authentic listening and, and, and rapport go a long way in opening people up to, to transformation, really. And don't you feel like Shannon, she just has this, um, like you don't even know it's happening to you. 
Like you're like, you're just there. And all of a sudden you're like, what just happened? Yeah. It's How did I get here? And it's like this. Shannon exists as a um, chaplain all of the time. Like that is just her standard modus operandum. And so she will love you as a chaplain and call you out as a chaplain. And it takes you a while to realize that she has switched from like just deep love and acceptance to naming uh, what you need to fix, <laughs> at least in my experience. Just want to like, just, yeah, let's just praise Shannon. Yes, Dyson. yes, I'm, I'm here for it. Thank, Thank you. you. Yes. Um, we did not. We did not deserve Shannon Dykus. Amen. You have you have offered us this gift. So yes. Amen. Shannon Dykus. I affirm that. Um, so as we talk about people that walk with us and that we're thankful and praise God for, um, I like to think of those people as soul sojourners with me. People that, in my in the way I understand the divine and life, have walked with me in previous forms of existence and will probably walk with me in latter forms of existence. Yeah. Um, and so I'm wondering who those soul sojourners would be for you in whatever way you understand that term. Yeah, you know, I, I've been really amazed lately at um, how those relationships emerge through, through the work. I think it's, I, I often sort of grew up with this understanding that sort of you had to be friends first and you had to find sort of like, if you connected, then you could like find things to do together. Right. And, and something really shifted for me that, that sometimes what happens is you commit to the work together. You say, mm. we're going we're gonna to do this. Like we're going to do, we're going to find ourselves in, in spaces of mutuality around abolition or, yeah. um, um, right now, something that's been a big part of my life is this um, truth telling around uh, about lynching victims in mm. in our county, and that's just put me into relationships with people that I wouldn't. Though that has been the vehicle that has put me into relationships with people who who want to be sort of in, in this in this work of truth telling, and one of those people uh, is Mary Walker, who mm. is a is 89 years old and mm. um, is a Baptist minister in Rollsville, North Carolina, just a little bit north of us. And mm-hmm. you can imagine what it was like to be a black woman, Baptist person yes. who was felt called to ministry at the age of 12. And wow. the kinds of roadblocks, both, both within the black community, Mary would say, and in the white community from all sides as a woman called to ministry and who has just seen so much transformation and so much resurgence of violence and bigotry. And, mm. and as soon as I started talking to Mary, I just thought, I, I just want, like, I just want to sit here and, and for you just to, to pour your story out on me and for me just to be present to it. Um, and this, this deep kinship, both around women who've, who've walked in ministry, but also a recognition that she is one of these ancestors for me, one of these women who have, who have made the path um, straight for me to be able to walk. And, and also someone who gen- a few generations ago would have been pitted against me as, as a, as a racialized enemy. Yeah. And so there's all of that. Like when I think when you talk about those soul relationships, there's those, 
it's always a complicated interweaving of, of the places where we come together and the places where there's still healing to be done. Yeah. And so I just, again, I, I, I give thanks for Reverend Mary Walker and, and for her life and her witness. Yeah. Yeah. I think those relationships exist at the intersection of where we come together and where we come apart. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's just such a, a painful and authentic and beautiful place to live and to meet somebody. Yeah. I think I'm experiencing more and more of those soul relationships, the more I'm willing to come apart and the older I get. Uh, the last, well, this is 2019, I have to remind myself what year it is sometimes, it just, I forget. <laughs> um, but I've been coming apart, I think pretty steadily since 2008, which was my freshman year in uh, undergrad. Uh, and what I anticipated being like a three or four year journey of coming apart has just it has just gone on and on uh, because I, I continue to find new ways to come apart, new ideas to challenge and question, new ways of opening up and doing my work. Yeah. Um, and so I don't, I don't know what your journey has been like, but our backgrounds are at least similar in that we both grew up in evangelical um, congregations. And mine was, I don't, I don't know that I can say it was like white evangelicalism. Um, our church was fairly diverse, but it probably was more or less. Um, and so the first stage of me coming apart was challenging, not even challenging, asking, being willing to ask questions, right, about my faith. The the more I, I loved my faith so much, I was a, a DC talk Jesus freak uh, back in the day. And, and because I loved my faith, when I got to college, I just used elective courses to learn more about the history of Christianity, right? It made logical sense. Yeah. Um, except the more I learned, the less I liked Christianity. And mm-hmm. thus, the journey of coming apart began. And so, as you think about your transition um, from who you were entering college, for instance, um, and just even focusing on your faith journey, what launched the transition for you? And and what does that process look like now? Yeah, I also have sort of a, like a evangelical adjacent kind of experience mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. I actually grew up in the Episcopal Church, but the part okay. of the Episcopal Church that's left the Episcopal Church, uh, the church in North America. So sort of very liturgical, but with mm-hmm. a strong sort of biblicism um so people weren't doing laps in the sanctuary no <laughs> <laughs> gotcha exactly. yeah but very young life influenced okay. um like our youth group leader was also the young life regional director so it definitely had that feel and and so it was kind of like a weird mashup of of things of ways mm. to grow up um but I, I think that there was something about the parts of the Episcopal liturgy that, that sustained me in ways that perhaps other evangelicals who didn't have that sort of worship experience um, didn't, weren't able to be sustained. Yeah. So there's something about saying, um, maybe saying the Nicene Creed or, mm-hmm. or having the liturgy for Eucharist every week that a sort of brought something into relief almost immediately. Like it, um, it gave me a sense that there was something else out there that was somehow a part of this and yet seemed so different and sort of like two traditions that war with each other um, could just couldn't find a way to, to fit together. You know, I mean, I think a, a lot of my, for me, it began with reading. Like mm. books were always, it felt like a safe place to go because it didn't require hurting other people or um, interrogating or relying on on other people's emotional labor to to support what I was doing. I just 
books are always available to us. And yeah. Yeah, and so it really was reading. Um, I remember one of the first was actually Tandeka, who was um, is a philosopher who, I, I mean, I haven't heard anything about them since I was in college, but, mm. but that book um, about whiteness was really formative for me. And I read that when I was 18 and, and reading Cornell West and, and reading about global feminism. Those really opened the door for me to a different world, but it would take me a couple more years to see that that had something to do with Christianity. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I was always, I, I feel like there's always been sort of a grace that precedes me because I've, manage to stick with this church and Jesus thing in spite of a lot. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and that's really found its way to me in, in a lot of places that, that were unexpected. Um, one was showing up at Chapel Hill Mennonite Fellowship um, when I was at Duke and for grad school. And Peter Dula was there talking about his time with Mennonite Central Committee in Iraq mm-hmm. and, and about how he was one of the only Americans who went without um, an armed escort because it would be, it wouldn't make sense for somebody who had this commitment to loving their enemies to find themselves using a gun against their enemy. Yeah. And I was like, I'm sorry, what? (laughs) 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 Are you lost your mind? (laughs) I had to, Never heard anything like that before. Um, I had no, like, pacifism was not something, yeah, I knew anything about. Mm-hmm. And it really was this conversion experience, um, this sort of sense of, wow, this this Jesus thing, people have been making it a lot less radical. Than <laughs> <laughs> right. People are, are really, like, they believe this enough to go, like, for real die for it. Mm. Um and so I got to like figure out, I got to figure myself out with this whole Jesus thing and, and find some people who like are this serious about it. If mm. I'm going to, if I'm going to keep doing this. And that's what led me to the Mennonites who it turns out are not all quite. <laughs> who knew? I, who knew? <laughs> um, but I just kind of kept finding myself in these little pockets of people who, you know, we're, we're doing things that, just seemed pretty amazing to me. Mm. Um, yeah, just it was this sort of feeling this line of grace that brought me into this this church community that I'm a part of now and um, continue to to find life in despite a lot of places that are really hard. Yeah. What are some of the um, barriers you've recognized within yourself to experiencing um, the spirits or deeper levels of of Melissa? Mm. I mean, I, I think one of the one of the joys of this season of life is has been learning how to write, mm. <laughs> um, is something that took me a long time, a lot of practice and and being taught how to write well, which is I think gives me some spaces um, to sort of do that reconnection that maybe I didn't have before. Mm. Um, I think you're right in congregational settings, right? You just you're you really are there as a, the, the person you are is the person that has been called forth by this congregation and yeah. um, for the needs of this congregation. And that's, that's what we do, right? right. That's what the pastor is. And that's the sort of, I think what you're saying, like 
there is a self death to that. <laughs> so, mm. Like there's, or there's a dormancy, yeah. right. That has to happen. And I feel like writing has, has been the place where I've been able to let myself emerge more mm. fully. And it was that maybe my, my congregation can, can intersect with me and mm. have conversations with me in places that, that maybe necessarily don't fit within the space of a traditional congregational life. Yeah. Um, so I certainly think that that's one place. And then I think also just the expansion of, of the work that happens in the community and, and finding myself being drawn into interfaith relationships and being able to um, actually find myself uh, as being ministered to and, and being the recipient of the gifts of, of other faith traditions. Mm-hmm. So for instance, we, I just was the Shabbat speaker on Saturday, um, but it, but that speaking came after an hour long service, which is chanted Hebrew that's chanted. Yeah. Um, and this incredibly beautiful, meditative, deeply spiritual form of reconnection as it felt for me. And to be the person sitting in the congregation um, and to be able to receive the gift of my friends, Eric and Jenny, who are the rabbis there, mm. it felt very similar to when we've been able to be present at the masjid in our town um, at evening prayer and yeah. to be able to sit before my friend, Imam Mohammed, um, and have him be the one who sort of calls my spirit out um, mm. and just feel incredibly grateful for how those relationships with our our Abrahamic cousins have have been not just sort of interfaith relationships, but actual um, spiritual experiences. Yeah, yeah, those are, are beautiful. I find it enriching whenever I can experience um, spirit and divine connection in uh, unexpected or or ways that are non traditional for me. Those moments seem to just be really, really powerful. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm glad you're, you're continuing to get to have those experiences. Yeah. Well, are, are there questions you're living into in terms of your faith journey right now in this season? Yeah, there are. You know, I think we're on this journey right now as a congregation to think about um, our communion practice. We've really committed a whole year to sort of having this conversation about, about how we practice communion. And I think what we're discovering is that really there's all these all these like these layers of us and our community that are underneath it about what it means or sort of thinking back about what you said before what does it mean for us to both be to make claims about being one at Mm. this table and yet the realities in which we cannot be and what does that what does that have to do with me and what does that have to do with that what's possible how are we sort of uh, how is this um a ritual of hopefulness mm-hmm. um and how is it also a ritual of uh repentance for yeah. what cannot be and so i think we're just as we've sort of had the, these sort of questions about um our communion practice it's just uncovering lots of questions within myself about how i can be for others and also fully myself in the world mm-hmm. um what are the places that those have to um, have to diverge, and um, what does it mean for this group of people who 
have nothing in common except that we have chosen to be for one another. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and just what a, how weird and amazing and hard that makes church. Mm. Um, and yeah. And so those myself and community are is sort of that question I'm asking right now. Mm. What keeps you coming back? I look around and I, and I think as hard and terrible and difficult as things can be, it's just, I'm surprised. I continue to be surprised by the movement of the spirit among mm. people um, in really tangible ways that, I mean, I think I'm, I'm pretty strongly a materialist. <laughs> like, like it, I really like the, the way the spirit is moved is like, people pay off each other's debts and when when someone is in in prison we go and Mm. someone needs a job we find one um and and to do this for people who just have have nothing to offer you yeah yeah that is such a it's it's that is such a radical space of undoing of the sort of constant desire to cultivate our our wants and our desires and it doesn't feel like there's any other space that is free of that um something i often tell (laughs) tell people in our our congregation is this is the one hour where we are not doing anything. (laughs) You are not contributing anything. You are not making the world a better place. You are not, um, uh, you know, we're not, we don't, we're not, we're not building a house or, or like we're literally wasting time. Yeah. Uh, And to waste time together feels like such a countercultural act at this point in our, in our, capitalist like grinding people into the ground mm. um and and i i i don't know of any other place that offers that <laughs> i'm not trying to make anybody better in church um, <laughs> to offer moral lessons or to make you feel better about the world mm. we're literally here to waste time and i just need i need an i need a place to waste time that's such a um a Sabbath infused understanding of Sunday morning. Yeah. It's uh, in, in some ways very countercultural. It's, I'm, I think mostly observation, mm. you know, that I, I, it's becoming more and more apparent to me over time, how every second of my life is, is meant to be cultivating something. I'm supposed to be getting better at something or, and some of those things are really important. That's, it's not to say that that work doesn't need to happen. Um, but just a, a sense of that this, <laughs> this offers nothing, provides nothing. Um, uh, I just, that it, it became clear to me over time that that's really this, that's what, that's what church makes available. No one is here to entertain you. No one, in fact, if you're not bored at some time, at some point in our worship service, I feel like I have failed as a pastor. Like, right. <laughs> you should be bored. Yes. I don't want you to be like bored the whole time. Yeah. Um, but being bored means that, that something wasn't for you, right? Mm. Like, like, like we didn't design this worship service to be an experience for you. Like somebody else got something out of it that you didn't. 
And that's okay. Like that's actually a good. Yeah. So my kids think church is so boring, right? Yeah. And I'm like, yes, church. <laughs> yes. Hold on to that. Like that, that will be very helpful to you in a few years. Right. <laughs> All right, so as we as we wrap up, we're going to do a lightning round. I'm going to do something I haven't done before, which I'm excited about. Um, so excited. Uh, but before I get to that, um, a question that I love to kind of let percolate in my mind is if there was no injustice in the world, right, and I wasn't doing my own healing work, what would my work be? And I decided for myself that, that if, if those scenarios were in fact true, I would be a storm chaser slash food critic. Right. So I would travel around chasing crazy storms. And while I'm in towns, I would try and review the local food. And that that seems like the perfect job um, for me. So I, I throw the question out to you, Melissa, if, if there was no injustice and there's nothing you had to heal within yourself or your family, what work would you be doing? How would you make money? Um, let's see. What would I do? I would. I, I learned about this thing called the nap ministry. Have you heard of this? <laughs> Just like, like, that sets up cots. It lets people come in and nap. I, I would run a nap ministry, like just a place where like people could come and take naps. <laughs> that is wonderful. Like in my life yes, right now. Yes. Because even with all the injustice gone in the world, kids are still going to kid, you know, yes. babies are going to baby. So yes. I would definitely run like a nap ministry. The other thing that like is, is my dream is to have a national baby holding program um, where people become certified at like, you do like a background check and it, this would work well in your scenario where there's no evil in the world. Yeah. Um, but you could become certified as like a baby holder and you'd mm -hmm. have like, like this badge that was mm -hmm. given to you so that people could know you're like, like in like at a restaurant yep. or like, at the grocery store and you just like need somebody to hold your baby, like, or you're just like over it and, or you're at the YMCA and you just like want to like run for a half hour. I would be a, your baby holder. Um, and so I would like a society where it was like perfectly fine to like have a few people to hold your baby. Yeah. <laughs> so I, would be, I would run the national baby holding program. <laughs> Oh, that is so great. That is so great. Have you heard about, uh, I know this happens in New York, but there's a, there are professional cuddlers out there. Have you heard about these people? Yes, I have. Yes. Yeah. Would that be a potential additional arm of your, your business venture, the napping and baby holding yeah. cuddling fit right in there? Sure. I feel yeah. like there could be, yeah, I feel like this is a, like a, like a international multi, like a multinational corporation. <laughs> yes. <laughs> of love and vitality and physical connection and development and i love it yeah that is that is so phenomenal oh thank you for sharing that and for uh dreaming with me for a second <laughs> sure. so the part i have yet not yet done um is intentionally creating space for my guests to ask me one question as mm -hmm. as we've talked or even outside of this is there a question that is, is burning in your mind that you want to ask yeah I could like, I'm going to avoid like an embarrassing question. Oh, like, you, you don't know. have to. I, <laughs> we <Yeah>. can go there. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. What do I really want to know? I want to know. Um, Before you ask, just, uh, just so you know, my tolerance for embarrassment, there are videos online and they were public for many years of me doing uh, a lips, two different lip syncs to the song Barbie girl, um, full oh, costume. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, I have um, uh, secondary embarrassment syndrome. Um, I just made this up right now. <laughs> I just, like, when other people are embarrassed, I feel like I feel it in my soul. Like yeah. I, I can't even handle it. Like right. I just, um, I, I fall to pieces. Um, okay, so here's what I want to know. Okay. What do you consider the perfect or near perfect album? Like, like every track is right where it's supposed to be. It is like every song is just as, as it should be. Like it was mixed well, it was edited well. Like what is, what would you say is a perfect or near perfect album? Man. So, you know, I've got to admit, I am not a music head like that, though I would like to aspire and pretend to be. Um, so I'm sure there are others, even friends that I have that would scoff at these two albums, but uh, given the parameters I've been given, there are two that came to mind instantaneously. Uh, the first is, and those that know me probably won't be surprised at this, it's Kendrick Lamar's Damn. Um, oh, yeah. As no. just a hip hop work, it, I, when it came out, I was just like, man, this is the perfect hip hop album. Um, yeah. No, 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 this is, that's a great answer. Yeah, yeah no, that's great. The variety of tracks, the different voices, the stories that are told, uh, it's phenomenal. But the second answer that is probably unexpected is, oh, what's the name of the album? Um, I don't remember the name of the album right now. It'll come to me in a second, but it's John Legend's album. And it has the song, it's the one with the song, uh, Ordinary People and Number One in it. And I, I like that album. Have you heard it? Yeah. Okay. I like it because it tells a succinct and clear story from start to finish and you don't see that as often anymore yeah that's right yep Mm -hmm. and there's a variety like he goes from foolish whoremonger to like committed person appreciating his relationship in the span of one album and you even have i mean i think kanye's track number one is the epitome of foolishness um but it also just makes me laugh every time i hear it (laughs) (laughs) no that's a good point it feels like people are kind of like I, I, I heard actually, and maybe you've heard this, that in order to get a, a like to get paid for a song, a streaming mm-hmm. song, a person has to listen to 30 seconds of the song. Um, mm-hmm. And so there, so when people put out tracks now, it really has to be really good for the thir- first 30 seconds. So you don't get any yeah. of this like long intro, like it has to. And so I think it's true that there's, streaming is just changing the way that music's being produced. And so you don't yeah. get, it's like, we need to get as many hits on this track as we can yep. rather than this is an album that tells the story. So, yep. Which yeah, is, it's, it's fine for like, uh, when you just need to dance to something, right? But when you want to really experience an album, you you need story, man. That's you need right. story. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's good. What would you say? Um, I, I have, I've, tie a tie for this as well um the first one is alanis morissette's jagged little pill uh, which just really does feel like um every track on there Mm. is is like perfectly um captures a sort of um rage of a certain Mm. period of the of the early 90s Um, and that is just such a good album. And the other one is Jay-Z's The Black Album, um, which I just think is incredible. I would say it's near perfect because I'm a little, I'm a little bothered by the third verse of 99 Problems. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And my guess is that Jay-Z now would look back and probably also mm-hmm. think that maybe he would have done something different on that, on that yeah. verse. But, um, but near perfect, Jay-Z. Okay. So, okay, an- another sidebar before we wrap up. I have a continual debate with people about um, Jay-Z's all-time ranking in terms of hip-hop artists. Ooh. I think he's like, I think he's overrated, honestly, um, in terms of his actual delivery and metaphors, and even his like tone. It's, it's really good, but I think there are quite a few people that are better than him. Where do you put him all-time? Are you saying that um, rapping about the appreciation of your um, condo value is not really sort of like, is that really like where you're at? You know, it, it, it doesn't really meet my criteria for greatness, lyrical content, but you know, it's just me. Uh, that's amazing. Yeah, you know, I, um, I, pro- I, I would agree. Like, I feel like the Black Album definitely sticks out to me but i'm not i'm not sort of uh across the board like jay's every album jay yeah. is is like totally amazing um yeah. so yeah so definitely and again because of my my 90s credentialing mm-hmm. like like biggie and mm. tupac like it's just it's really hard yeah. when nostalgia is a part of is a part of your picture nas i mean yeah. There was a lot going on in the 90s. Right. right. I mean, Nas basically ended Jay-Z's career at one point. Right. That's wonderful. <sighs> okay, so as we as we wrap up, I like to end these podcast episodes um, by leaving my listeners with something tangible. It can be a phrase, a quote, uh, a daily practice they can do that just a short amount of time that helps them return to the themes that we've discussed. And so as you reflect on all that we've talked about um, from the glory of the 90s uh, <laughs> to, um, to what it means to invite people in in love by calling them out to actively working for social justice or being intentional about doing nothing and appreciating when something uh, connects with someone else in a way it doesn't with us. As you think about all these themes, um, moving from whiteness to wokeness, is there a practice you would invite the listeners into uh, to help integrate these into their lives moment by moment for the next week? I can uh, leave you with a question that yes. is a guiding question for me. It, it helps me figure out there, there's so much work to do. And so mm-hmm. what's the work I commit myself to? What are the relationships I need to invest in? Who don't I know that I need to know? Mm-hmm. What do I write about? Um, and that question is, um, does this make the world free? Mm. Uh, does this make the world free? Um, and, and then you've got to know what freedom is. Um, does this, does this make, does this release oppressors from oppression? And does this release victims of oppression from their oppression? Um, and if this isn't the world that you're trying to create, um, if it doesn't lead to freedom, then why are you doing it? Um, so does this make the world free? Thank you for that. That's a phenomenal centering question for us. If people want to connect with you more intentionally, uh, read some of your writings, get your book, um, or just kind of learn about all that's happening at Chapel Hill Mennonite Fellowship, how can they how can they find you and connect? Yeah, you know, I'm active on Twitter mm-hmm. and um, just with my name and 
Um, I have a poorly kept up website that I will post rare <laughs> if I have a speaking gig coming up. And I'm always happy to come places. I'm a, I'm a solo pastor, so I need to be here on Sunday to, to preach. But I'm always happy to hang out with people. And, and if you want me to come out and be with you, let me know. That's what's up. And I'll make sure to post links to those in the episode description as well. Thank you for being here with us, Melissa. I've appreciated it. It's been great to connect. All right. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Invisible Truths Podcast. If you liked what my guest Melissa had to say, consider clicking on the links in the episode description. I strongly recommend checking out her book, Fire by Night. And if you haven't done so already, follow her on Twitter. She always has insightful things to say and poignant commentary about the state of our culture and the state of faith. So she's a voice you need to follow and listen to. I've got my co-host here, Kimani Truth. Kimani, would you like to say anything? Nope, turns out he's still nonverbal, so it may be a while before he talks, but know that he's here helping me put the finishing touches on this episode. So if you've appreciated Kimani's work, uh, feel free to come back next week and listen for more. Once again, thanks for listening to the Invisible Truths Podcast. Until next week, I'm Ben Tapper.